Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today, we are very fortunate to have one of the eminent thought leaders in the opiate epidemic space, uh, Dr. Nabarun Das Gupta. He's a senior scientist, injury prevention, research center innovation fellow, and he's based out of the University of North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Das Gupta is really one of those unique scientists who understands the field both experientially and from a traditional academic uh, perspective. Uh, he has had numerous successes throughout his career, including serving as an advisor to the Food and Drug Administration, uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the World Health Organization. Uh, many of his efforts, including the Lazarus Lab, uh, has been recognized by former President Dr. Bar uh, Mr. Barack Obama, and it's a testament to the longevity and success that Dr. Dasgupta has had in his career. So with that, I would uh, like to um, begin and allow Dr. Dasgupta kind of introduce himself by really kind of telling us what was the impetus to such a unique and successful career and what prompted you to go on the trajectory that you currently are on? Thank you very much for that introduction. So I think there's, I think working with patients is something that has always felt like the right thing to do, but it's only been more recently where I feel like I've been able to really bring resources to bear to get patient perspectives more directly involved in the research itself. And I think a lot of those experiences came out of touching the void. I worked on big data for a decade uh, and longer, and we had data sets with hundreds of millions of observations, right? And what we found was, was when you work with, with big data for long enough, you realize kind of the limitations of those data. You reach a limit of what you can actually understand. And what we were missing most of the time was context. How do these things actually impact patient life, uh, and, patient life and the way uh, folks function in the real world? And so it was kind of touching that void that really made me take uh, patient engagement more seriously, going from something that I should do to something that, oh my God, I have to do this because our data, we've reached the limit of what we can get from big data. Oh, that's a really excellent observation that you made. I like the phrase you used, touching the void, because essentially it's a certain uncertainty that comes from the analysis of healthcare when you go beyond the data. You talk about data sets with observations and you mentioned you reached the limit over time. Uh, that's when you kind of sense what this void was. Can you talk a little bit more about that demarcation between the power of observation and then this void that you're alluding to? Absolutely. So I have been looking at opioid overdose mortality data for 20 years. And we, you know, you have these incredibly large data sets of every person who's died in the United States. I have millions of records on my computer, one row for each person who's died. And in that one row, the data are very structured. They're coded using alphanumeric codes that have international standards. Um, you have age and gender and kind of all these other variables. But at the end of the day, you have no sense of humanity. You have no sense of what that person's life was like. And, you know, there's a emotional toll that comes from, you know, looking at truncated data, looking at data that doesn't really convey a human experience. And, you know, those are great for statistics and for policy, but they really don't tell the whole story. And so 
I think, you know, it kind of reaching the limit with even with millions or hundreds of millions of observations of patient experience, you just find yourself wondering what really happened here and you know how was there's an emotional side to it right like you know who did they leave behind what does their grave look like and then there's also the more biological aspects like what else were they taking why did they have that kind of pain and um, those both of those types of questions you just don't get from these very structured uh, data sets that we tend to think are the most powerful tools in epidemiology that's a very powerful observation because what you're noting is that there's a difference between the data and the perception of the data. Can you give an example of probably one of the more uh, early examples where you noticed that, hey, the data set's not telling us everything? Was it a particular anecdote? Was it a particular finding that you felt was incongruent with what you were initially observing? Yes, absolutely. I, I will never forget seeing the overdose death record of one of my close friends in one of these data sets. Wow. And um, it was someone who had been a mentor to me and it was just powerful to see. And it, you know, it was, it was the data were anonymized. I didn't have a name, but I knew enough about the circumstances to be sure that this was his death record. And it was just one row on my computer. And I left that screen open um, for days on my computer. And I just couldn't, bring myself to analyze that data set and I could feel his presence through it. And I knew everything he had gone through, all the tragedy his life had, 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 he had experienced in his life. And just to see Tony was his name, just to see his, to see that kind of reduced into these letters and numbers just didn't feel like I was doing him justice by adding that up into a table. Wow, that is very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, overdose record of a close friend. You felt his presence through it, Tony. Wow, that, that's a, a, an incredibly powerful story. Uh, thank you for sharing that, first off. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, that kind of leads me to think, as a policymaker, you inevitably have to deal with the bigger picture. Uh, and at a certain level, that does take you from those individual experiences to the broader data sets. Uh, and at a certain level, it's hard to reconcile those two. What are you doing to try to reconcile the individual experience with the broader kind of sterility required of high-level public policy? So I think often in policy, the questions start with, oh, there's a problem, we have some numbers on it, and we need to find a solution. Um, instead, what I find much more fulfilling and powerful is to talk to patients in their own setting, um, whether they're people in pain, people living with rare diseases, um, people who use drugs, and really understand what it is that is concerning to them about their lives. And going back and then asking the data sets, you know, figuring out which data sets to use, what we can do, and then kind of compiling the human experience with the numbers and arriving at a policy recommendation that is holistic, that ties together the individual experience with the numbers. And I think, you know, often with the professional classes of policymakers, you know, they're often siloed in different government bureaucracies or in mm -hmm. particular research institutes, right? And they each have a very finite set of tools. They have their own swim lanes. Um, one part of the government is not supposed to be talking about policy that's from another, right? And those kinds of um, 
silos really hamper our ability to understand what people actually need out of these policies and government actions. That's, that's an excellent point. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit. Mm-hmm. I like your word holistic because I personally feel that is a better approach, but some may argue that it's a biased approach that perhaps you're allowing data or anecdotes that may impact the true objective outcome that may lead to substandard policy. What would you say to somebody who may push back at a policy level and say a holistic approach may have hidden biases in there? I would say that every single analysis has has biases and it's a matter of whether we acknowledge them or not. Uh, policymakers will have biases on, you know, this is a policy that I've worked on before in another adjacent therapeutic area. And I think this is gonna work for opioids. And so they transfer that, right? And that kind of bias exists in the policy world. My antecedents are real world experience instead of my own baggage, my own personal experience. I mean, sorry, professional uh, history and experience. And so I try to start with a clean slate each time uh, when I approach patients and say, you know, tell me about what's really important to you right now. And I think I'm being very transparent about where I'm originating these ideas. I always invite the patients to join our publications, to be part of the research process. Um, Whereas often with things that appear to be objective and sterile, you have these hidden biases that, um, that aren't acknowledged. So I think you know, putting it all out there where the idea came from, giving credit to the people who originated them. I think that's all part of being more transparent. No, I would agree. And I thank you for that. Uh, We mentioned the research and bringing in patients to get their input on research. How much of that has impacted your research study designs? Uh, Do you find yourself taking uh, a different approach to how you're creating these clinical studies that may be outside of traditional epidemiology, outside of traditional clinical medicine? Great point. Yes, absolutely. And it's been really fulfilling. And it's it's really interesting you ask that because this is when I talk to even compassionate researchers who really believe in patient engagement, this is the pushback I get is, well, we can't have patients dictating study design. And this is our, you know, this is our swim lane, right? And it it's it kind of gets it backwards for me because I think we have to ha- let the patients and people with lived experience drive the research question of what really matters. And then it's up to us to come up with the study design, right? And get their input on it. I'll give you one example. Uh, there was a syringe, um, syringe program that was interested in a lot of their clients were on methadone and um, they wanted to know how COVID impacted their method, uh, like methadone take-home doses for uh, for addiction treatment. And they were in one large city in North Carolina and they uh, wanted, you know, they had connections to like two or three of the five or six, seven methadone clinics in the area. And they're like, well, can we just go and survey patients at those sites? And I'm like, well, that would make it a convenient sample, right? It would make it like a kind of a biased sample because it's people that you already, you know, clinics that you already know, clients that you already know. So let's just make a subtle change to our study design. And let's take the list of all the uh, programs in a 25 mile radius from your site and let's randomize them and then start at the top and call each of the clinic directors and ask them to participate in the study until we meet quota. And by making this very subtle 
uh, design shift in a collaborative way, we were able to get a piece of science that was more rigorous than if we had just done a convenient sample. So I don't see, you know, I don't see, so I think patient involvement in study design is really important, not just to like ask the right questions, but the process of explaining why you're making these design choices and why randomization is important is a learning process. It makes the it makes the collaboration two way instead of us just extracting from them. Nice. Is it always that iterative where you have a study design and the conversations and the development of the clinical study idea then leads to these pivots? Is it organically iterative or are you actively looking at other disciplines or other fields to see how they design clinical studies to potentially get new ideas. Absolutely. We're looking across the board all the time. Um, just as an example, yesterday, my meetings were with people with an advertising background. And then later in the day, I found myself in a chemistry lab uh, looking at mass spectrom spectrometers. Um, so yeah, we're super multidisciplinary. I'll give you one example where uh, we're trying to understand when you get when you have a, um, a a drug, a street drug that is very potent or adulterated with something dangerous, how do you communicate that alert back to people? And um, there's a lot of bad ways to do it because if you glamorize it too much, people will go and seek the ultra potent batches, right? And instead of taking precautions, so these kinds of problems have been already addressed in tobacco, in smoking, in smoking cessation, in sugary drinks, in um, and alcohol warnings. And so we are working with our School of Journalism, which has a health communications department, to do a randomized trial of drug alert messaging. And we, you know, and it's the kind of multidisciplinary thing which comes from our, from our partners on the ground who work with people who use drugs, who are saying like, well, we don't really know how to communicate with them. We've tried all these things and sometimes they work and sometimes they backfire. And we just like to know what to do. And I could have gone and said, hey, look, I know I can design you a flyer. I can make this work, right? Here's a social media post that I'm going to set right for you. But that's not how we do science. And that's kind of the, there's a bit of hubris, right? That yeah. we as scientists and professionals have. Like, well, yeah, you know, we're professionals. We know how to do this. And really challenging our assumptions and finding the right expertise to, to bring the right people to the table who, who can design these special studies is really cool. That is really cool. And the passion is obvious. Uh, you, you mentioned advertising background, chemistry lab, mass spectrometer, and then you talk about the School of Journalism. When you're approaching these organizations like journalists or chemists or advertisers, uh, what is their reaction? Are, are they uh, shocked, surprised, bemused? Uh, what is their initial reaction that you're finding when you approach them? So we have a secret power, which is that <laughs> we are doing things that matter to people yeah. and we're doing things that affect population health. A lot of times computer programmers, chemists, you know, advertisers are so, you know, feel like they should be doing something more to, for the public good, but they don't, they're not in, they're not there. They're not in that space. So when I approach them, it's, I lead with how important the big picture, like how important this work is to saving lives. And it's just this amazing key that unlocks all these doors. And, you know, it's, it's, they have a lot less baggage about, oh, we shouldn't do this policy or that has that implications. And they're, a lot, a lot of times way more open to experimenting and collaborating than even people in our disciplines. 
Very nice. Can you give a recent example of a unique collaboration that has netted some innovative insight? Yeah, and I'll mention the, the I, I alluded to the chemistry lab, and yeah. the reason why we were there was um, right now the drug supply in North America, the street drug supply, is more treacherous and unpredictable than it's ever been before. We have new psychoactive substances, we have new cuts that are being pushed into the supply. Um, a lot of it has to do with COVID and kind of the massive supply and supply chain disruptions that are happening because of that still. And these drugs are really dangerous. And so we need to really understand what's in those drugs. Um, and so we, you know, I'm a epidemiologist. I spend a lot of my time behind a computer writing code. And uh, what we really needed was street drug samples analyzed at a high quality chemistry lab. A lot of that work has been, gets usually done by cops or by uh, the law enforcement system mm -hmm. where you, they're analyzing substances, street drugs to figure out whether it's a controlled substance and how to put people in jail, right? Mm -hmm. The goal of all that chemistry is putting people in cages. And, the, and so for us as public health professionals, we're trying to keep people alive. It's a really different, different uh, approach. And what we found was, you know, we we've poached one of the crime lab scientists uh, to come to our team because we were able to like say, like, look, this is more important, right, to do it in a public health way. And so when we started working with their protocols, the crime lab crime lab protocols that are used for prosecution, we realized that, hey, wait a minute, you're not really, you're, all you care about is whether there is a controlled substance in here or not. You don't care about the cuts. You don't care about this dangerous adulterant. You don't care about the potency fluctuations that matter for people on the ground. And so we've had to design new chemistry protocols to, uh, with mass, spectrom mass spectrometers to, um, to tease apart kind of what are the real health harms in drugs and in street drugs and kind of connecting those to clinical presentations in our hospital. So super multidisciplinary, but you know, it's, it's, but the, it, our intent was clear and, and I think more public health oriented to make that happen. That's awesome. I love, I love the phrase. Chemistry to cages. That's nice. <laughs> that is really slick. Uh, I really want to harp in a little bit on this uh, perspective of keeping people alive versus putting people in cages. But before we move on, I want to kind of elaborate a little bit more on something you'd mentioned earlier to me about adverse events. Uh, you talk about the cuts, the formularies, and how that impacts what you are focusing on when you study an autopsy or you study that patient during his or her life and the actual event of death. Can you talk a little bit about how you're looking at adverse events and how that affects your overall research on that perspective? Absolutely. Um, I'll give you a, a, an example. So we had a patient present at UNC Hospital who had a hemoglobin of 2.9, I think, 2.7 or 2.9. The lower limit of, of normal is around 12 or 14. She was close to death. And it, and the doctors couldn't figure out why. They ruled out occult bleeding and all the traditional causes of anemia. Um, and what we found was that, and so we were able to get hold of, with her permission, of course, the drugs that she had been using, the heroin she had been using. We found that it was laced with a veterinary, like a, a horse surgery drug mm -hmm. and um, called xylazine. And 
what was really fascinating, and so the doctors in the ER and internal medicine and in hematology, no one had ever really heard about this because it's not really used and supposed to be used in humans. And so we turned to our colleagues at the veterinary school here in North Carolina, and then we started digging into the literature on the, the veterinary use of this adulterant. This, this, um, mm -hmm. And we found that in the 1970s, when this drug was first brought to market, for animals, there was a lot of talk about anemia, uh, of a transient anemia, and that was an atypical anemia syndrome. And that kind of, you know, had died out because it was became kind of established veterinary knowledge. And so in being able to link kind of the old veterinary literature with mm -hmm. the drug sample in our lab with the patient in the hospital, while the patient was still in the hospital, we were able to close that loop and say, look, here is what we think is the cause of this particular patient's problem. And we recommend, you know, we suspect that with cessation of use of that particular batch of heroin and uh, a few blood transfusions, you should be good to go. This isn't wow. like a more fundamental problem. So, yeah, so it's, it's very, you know, it, it's very real it's something we yeah. use every day that's really interesting uh just uh, to clarify as i understand xylazine is often used with other types of antibiotic formularies so as people are using the heroin they recognize that there could be infections from the heroin use so they're preempting those infections by introducing antibiotics into the formularies so so there's a so there's levamisole, which is another veterinary antifungal that gets put into cocaine and other drugs. Xylazine is a little different. It's an anesthetic. Okay. Uh, sorry, I don't expect everybody to know yes. these things. But what's really fascinating about, and, and this is exactly where the patient involvement really matters. Yes. So why, why would this drug be in the drug in the heroin supply? Well, it turns out that it seems to have some mu opioid receptor agonism. Mm. Um, and it, when we talk to people on the street who have been, whose drugs we've tested and asked like, what did you think about this particular batch? They said, oh, it was great because it held my, um, it held my withdrawal longer than fentanyl heroin does. So instead of injecting uh, four, every four hours, I could only, I could use twice a day and get the same um, staving off of withdrawal. But it doesn't get me high. Uh, in fact, it like causes this weird side effect where I'm like almost catatonic for 20 minutes right after I take it. And I really don't like that phase, but I'm continuing to use it because it keeps my withdrawal away and doesn't make me high. And, you know, of course we were like, well, it can also like put you close to death because of this yeah. anemia problem, right? So this is all part of the messaging. But this is what's really fascinating about this. What we're seeing in the drug supply right now is that the, that the, illicit drug manufacturers are making, are filling the gaps left by our medical care system, right? We don't have enough access to drug treatment. And so they have added to heroin something that doesn't get people high, but staves off withdrawal, which is like exactly the profile we would want for buprenorphine, methadone, right? Lamb even back in the day. And so, you know, it's just incredible to watch the the unregulated black free market, so to speak, meet patient or consumer needs on the ground. That is such a powerful statement. And I, I want to repeat that, uh, filling the gaps in care treatment, the black market essentially is filling patient needs, however you want to phrase it, market demand that the healthcare system is leaving behind. That is such a profound statement. 
I'm going to say that one more time, filling gaps in care treatment. And that is uh, probably one of the most powerful messages that your research has really resonated. You mentioned something a little uh, equally powerful a little while ago about how law enforcement quote unquote, doesn't care about the cuts or the formularies. And I think through this example, you elucidated beautifully why they should care. Uh, mm -hmm. What efforts or successes have you had in reconciling this approach to studying adverse events more granularly, studying toxicology as part of the clinical decision-making process for acute patients that has resonated with law enforcement and that has encountered some resistance with law enforcement? Oof. I had a loaded question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, we just do what the science tells us to do and what the patients want. And um, we, it, it, there's a, it's fascinating. There's a lot of resistance some from in our work from younger law enforcement officers. But when you get to the district attorney level, when you get to senior beat, you know, beat officers, they get it. They understand that policing is only one part of you know, public safety. And, um, and a lot of times our, you know, we'll repackage our materials, our, our findings to be less about like giving people information and more uh, giving cops information and instead presenting it in a way for the senior officers to uh, be able to convince the younger officers. And it's That's a really different, different, yeah. So at, at a high level, I mean, we've had, help from the crime labs in North Carolina. We've, we've, we interact with a lot of uh, like really progressive DAs and uh, sorry, district attorneys and others. And, you know, they're all okay with what we're doing, but, um, but you know, the, the, it's the day-to-day -day harassment from the, the B cops that kind of wears you down a bit. That's so for them, we're making, yes. so for it is an example, right? So we wanted to, how do you take this science, all the science that we're talking about and make it into something that a bored beat cop can look at while they're in their patrol car? And so we um, came up with this idea of a comic book, a graphic novel. Nice. And so we hired a local illustrator to um, kind of create a storyline and a full graphic novel. Um, and I don't, your, your viewers won't be able to see it, but uh, we'll be releasing it soon. But I'm showing, I'm showing the host here are kind of just some uh, of the of the art from it. But um, it's really meant to be like, you know, here's how drug checking fits into the broader picture of um, of the opioid crisis, of kind of the whole thing, and. Um, and so we think, you know, something like this will be more effective as a communication tool than a PowerPoint presentation via email. Nice. No, please let us know when that is available. Uh, I find this approach very interesting and uh, as with many of the things that you're doing, quite insightful. Uh, in contrast, community outreach, when physicians and healthcare policy experts want to talk to the public about healthcare issues, they take a very grassroots approach. They try to get to as local a level as possible and then communicate. What you're suggesting with the law enforcement and helping to reconcile law enforcement philosophy with the science and medicine of addiction and addiction therapy, you don't wanna focus on the more localized levels. You wanna focus more on the decision makers and have that trickle down. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot from working with our advertising colleagues, I'll be yeah. honest. <laughs> uh, they're professionals at convincing yes. people to do things, right? And so right. they point to a couple of things. If you're trying to counter misinformation or change someone's mind, 
the best way to do it is to have it have that message be delivered from someone they trust. So you need to create things that people who are sympathetic to you within their networks are willing to share with the people who are more recalcitrant. Right. And so you're optimizing for sharing instead of like dumping information. Um, and so, and then that's one thing I've learned. And the second thing is audience segmentation. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of this jargony phrase, but it means like, you know, we, from a public health perspective, from a clinical perspective, we think about this kind, this, this kind of patient, this kind of, you know, whatever, this local place. Uh, but what we really need to do is think about like how, how people make decisions and segment the audience based on who is the movable middle. You know, there's going to be some people who are already on your side, others who are never going to be on your side. How do you reach that movable middle? And instead of like trying to slice people's slice demographics by our a priori notions of who's in which bucket, mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of mindset that's much more goal oriented. Nice. This movable middle concept, I think, uh, is, is commonly discussed in politics. Uh, it's not necessarily as well understood in healthcare policy, mm -hmm. but we see with the pandemic and so many other things that politics and healthcare policy are becoming mixed. Uh, in your 20 years of experience, uh, what has this pandemic uh, prepared you for? And what are things that you're seeing in the pandemic that you have never seen in your 20 years in this field? <laughs> I love it. So um, I started my career because I wanted to be a, a virus hunter. I wanted okay. to do infectious diseases. And so I, I went to Princeton for virology. I went to Yale, got training in molecular biology and was like really a virologist. And at some point I realized, well, what happens if we swap the name of a virus for the name of a drug? Will these models still work? And it turns out, yeah, they do, but they start failing eventually, right? Once yes. you get complex enough. But um, but a lot of what we're, you know, so I studied pandemics, you know, a lot of what we're seeing with COVID right now was, was my, was, you know, the entire first half of my training. And mm. so I feel like this is kind of a moment that my career has been building to, uh, wow. both in drugs and infections. And um, it's been, it's been really fascinating to see how quickly we have created knowledge and misinformation yes. around COVID. It's way faster than anything. Uh, when the overdose deaths were climbing up and up and up in the early 2000s, we would be screaming about this and yeah. no one was paying attention, right? And there was no, you know, it was like a few papers a year, but, um, but it's, that's been really cool. What's been unexpected, I think, um, has been, well, I think some of the rise in telemedicine has mm -hmm. been a little bit of a surprise to me because yeah. it seemed like we had the technology. It seemed like we've been talking about this for a while. Um, but what has surprised me isn't like the impetus to use it now, mm -hmm. but kind of the lukewarm receptivity that I see on the streets about telemedicine. Yeah. Um, and that kind of surprised me because I was like, oh, everybody's got a cell phone. Like even all the people coming into the syringe exchange have cell phones, right? Like this is not that uncommon. Like everyone's gonna be cool with FaceTime now, but our, the, the patient populations I work with, you know, some are some, especially on the chronic pain side, right? Not having mm -hmm. to come drive 50 miles for an appointment is a godsend. It's awesome yeah. for them, right? Yeah. Um, but for others, the lack of human interact, like face-to-face -face human interaction kind of just makes you not want to do it. Uh, yeah. 
So, no, I completely agree. What's really interesting is now telemedicine utilization rates have dropped closer to pre-pandemic levels. So it was ah, this kind of spike that. and then it was this mm-hmm. drop. And so you're right. There is a human element component that uh, telemedicine has not yet figured out. One thing that really fascinates me is um, the concept of patterns and next level insights that are based upon patterns. As a former virologist turned drug addiction specialist, as somebody who has taken this multidisciplinary approach to the opiate epidemic and epidemics in general, you must clearly see patterns that most people miss in their daily ongoings and studying this epidemic. What are some patterns that you know are screaming obvious to you, but it seems that the general public just can't figure out? Hmm. So I would almost let me turn that a little bit on its head because okay. I think it's like, what are we doing? What are we doing wrong in science that the general public already knows, right? Okay. And so, uh, so I, I, I had started a, um, I worked at a, a health informatics startup um, in, based out of Harvard Medical School. And we were monitoring social media for adverse events uh, mm-hmm. for all kinds of drugs and medical devices. And what we found was that uh, we were looking at, in one study, we were looking at side effects posted on Twitter by patients of four steroids, glucosteroids, glucosteroids. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, then we looked at the adverse event profile from the scientific literature, from the drug labels. And what we found that the patients were complaining and caring about was really different from the side effect profile um, that the professionals cared about. Like so the, the FDA, MDE site and other organizations? Yep. Yeah. Exactly, the European sites, you know, and they were, uh, and this was done with colleagues in the UK, and they, you know, the the drug labels were talking about kind of the very serious complications with yeah. uh, with steroids, right? But the patients really cared about um, weight gain and insomnia, mm-hmm. and those things are just kind of like incidental at the bottom of the list when it comes to this. It comes to like the scientific numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Another example, we were looking at Accutane, which is isotretinoin, uh, an acne medication mm-hmm. that the scientific focus was really on suicidal ideation and preventing birth defects uh, for pregnant women. And um, the, but the patient, but the social media data uh, that we were seeing from patients was a lot of discontinuation for one particular reason that never appeared in any of the scientific studies, which was chapped lips, right? <laughs> and it's this kind of crazy insight that the patient, you know, you're talking about patterns, right? It's like, yeah. The pattern that I see is a blindness on the scientific side to listening to what patients actually have to say. Right. And I, you know, it just kind of blows my mind that we're, that we just don't do a better job actually yeah. getting patient input, even if it's something minor, right? Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I, we're going to have to wrap up soon. I don't want to take too much more of your time. But uh, before we go, um, is there anything you'd like the audience to know or understand about your research and just to know and understand who you are better as an individual? If there was one takeaway I would have for scientists and researchers and policymakers, when you're working with people with lived experience, it's treat them like doctors. Okay. So we already have a place in our research teams for physicians who have busy clinic schedules, right? We schedule meetings around them. We reduce their paperwork burden. We like help them out, right? The folks who are working on the ground helping who are patient advocates live those same, you know, a similar type of busy chaotic life. And so treat them like you would 
a physician scientist on your research team. I think that's been the simplest kind of way to unlock a lot of these partnerships. And um, for, and then, you know, there's things like reducing paperwork for them, um, making sure, even like things like leveraging your institutional weight. So mm -hmm. sometimes working with patient advocates, they struggle to pay uh, the fees for, for journal articles. And so, you know, you can, like in our institution, we can create affiliate accounts uh, for those people so they can have access to the library. Mm. And it's like small things like that, which you may take for granted, but really make a difference in how the patients and people who use drugs really can access information. So I would, I would recommend that. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Asgupta. It was really nice talking with you. I hope this is not the last of the conversations that we can have. And again, uh, thank you for your time and appreciate everything that you're doing for the substance use dependency community and for addiction medicine overall. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Take care, sir.